Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thanks for listening as together we continue to navigate the reality of ongoing confinement. Social distancing is part of this weekend's celebration of the Decatur Lantern Festival. We'll hear about the special lights and creations for a parade in place. With Smokelore, the award-winning journalist and food writer Jim Ockmoody has written a social and cultural history of barbecue. We'll listen back to an interview worth savoring. First... Let's take in a new art exhibit. After shutting their doors for nearly two months, the Hammonds House Museum is opening a new exhibit virtually. New Africans is a collaboration between artists Maurice Evans and Grace Kisa. Earlier this week, I spoke via Zoom with the artists and Hammond's House Executive Director Leatrice Elsie, who explained that virtual plans were in the works even before quarantine. Well, you know, we actually had a conversation last year about kind of disrupting our business model as we are looking at new ways to, you know, expand audiences, as well as new ways to, you know, raise resources, we knew that we needed to do a disruption of our business model and and going, doing some things digitally was part of that disruption. Um, And we actually had a board meeting in February where we decided that we would take the next six months to move into this digital kind of space with our programming, with exhibitions and what have you. And um, then the world disrupted. And so we didn't get our full six months, but it was okay because we at least had been thinking about it. And so my recent Grace's show was supposed to open in early April. And so we pushed it back because I just needed time to think because we had not you know, while we were talking about it, we hadn't really thought about what are the details? What, you know, how does this actually work in, in real life? Um, I needed a little bit of time and space to think about it and brought together 
a few people who have been doing digital programs and projects with me in the past so that we can just kind of think about how does this look? What is the signature look and feel for the Hammond South Museum? What's going to showcase the work the best to make sure we do, are doing something that the artists are also proud of in terms of how their work is being displayed. And so that's kind of how we got to this. And then we, you know, talked to the artists and, you know, we're like, okay, so let's do this. So May 15th is the date. Now, the new Africans exhibition is the first to be shown in Hammond's House digital series. Maurice and Grace, would you talk about the meaning of the title? I should specify for listeners, New Africans is spelled N-U. Yes, the title is a new name for a group of people whose ancestors come from the West Coast of Africa who were brought into the Americas for slavery. And because of that, those circumstances, those group of people have had to create a new culture for themselves and trying to stay connected to a place they don't really know about anymore. And so that forced them to create their own traditions, their own ideologies, their own religions. And so that group of people, I decided to name them the New Africans, so as to specify that they are not born on the continent of Africa, but they are still African, even though they have been uh, mixed in with other groups of people, mainly they are still African. So that's the group, all of them. So the, the South Americans, for example, so the Brazilians, the people in Suriname, the people in the islands where there's Curacao or, or wherever they are, wherever they were brought to, that connection is the West Coast of Africa. Who were some of the legendary African warriors, goddesses, and queens these models represent? There was a warrior in Ghana called Amina, and she fought against imperialism. There were other Ashanti queens, the Nubians. There were also some on on the east coast of Africa. I'm from Kenya. So there was uh, African warriors that worked with the Mau Mau, or the freedom, our land freedom army in Kenya. And a lot of times you always hear about the men's part in that revolution, but there are always women involved. And a lot of times they're kept out of history. So uh, there are Zulu uh, queens, there are queens in Northern Africa, uh, Egypt, uh, warriors as well, across the whole continent. That's where I drew my inspiration from. There are also warriors on this side of the Atlantic. So a lot of times I'm learning, a lot of times we have been kept out of history or in the retelling of history. And so I've been unearthing uh, female warriors across the Atlantic, North and South America and Central America that have participated in the freedom for their people. You are filling in important gaps, major holes in history here. Would you describe what the models are wearing in these photographs? In my own practice, I do mixed media sculpture. And so a lot of times I'm using found objects or materials that are readily available and usually pretty cheap to recreate uh, my pieces. So that's what I was doing with these costumes. So a lot of them are items that you would find at Home Depot, at craft stores, fabric that I have. Uh, So for the warrior looks, uh, a lot of the pieces are made of wood, plastic, fiber, sisal fiber, string, 
metal. And sometimes the plastic is made to look like metal. I found pieces at Home Depot in the hardware section, cords in the electrical aisle, anything that would give me a different texture and a different feel. So some of the pieces I used uh, plastic zip ties, which gave me the look of metal without the weight. And I use it also in my sculpture as well as the costuming. Kelly Rowland from Destiny's Child wrote the song Crown, and the lyrics say, my hair, my crown, wear it how you want, girl. Why is it especially important for women of color to have role models empowering them to wear their hair however they want? Uh, Because there's been a system over the the past 400 years and, and longer when imperialism came into Africa, that they tried to strip people of expressing their aesthetic culturally. And the crown is a big signifier on the continent and on the other side of the Atlantic. So when the Africans were brought here, most of them shaved their heads so they wouldn't be able to distinguish one tribe from another, uh, one ethnicity from another, one culture from another. So they all ended up looking the same. So the way black women express themselves is a touch from where they came from and uh, it is a way of signifying and expressing themselves. So it's a reclaiming of your body, your space and how you express yourself through your hair. A lot of times hair was also politicized. So a lot of times when women go to work for a corporate environment, they have to change their hair. Black women do, whereas everybody else gets to do what they want to with their hair. In New Orleans, Uh, There was a time when Black women's hair styles were outlawed, so they couldn't wear their hair the way it was. And then they started wrapping their hair, and because their wraps were so elaborate, even that was outlawed, because they were attracting too much attention. They were attracting the attention of white white men specifically, Uh and they didn't want that to happen, so they outlawed Black women wearing their hairs out, because they made their hairstyles really elaborate and really pretty and attractive, Mm -hmm. they wanted to put a stop to that. Mm -hmm. So they forced them to wear head wraps. But that backfired because again, how our people are really expressive, Mm -hmm. they take the head wrap and make it really elaborate and pretty and makes them even more attractive. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of what happens with that. Now, there's also the role of hairstyles and hair adornment that we see in art, in the culture of ancient African civilizations. Would you talk about that? One of the things that Grace took from her childhood was the wrapping of the Mm -hmm. hair. Yes. So the threaded styles were really popular when I was a little girl in the 70s in Kenya and Ethiopia. So people would wear their hair in sculptural forms. And I would look at those styles. We were too young. My mother told us that we were too young to get those done. But I grew up watching women with these beautiful sculptural threaded styles that were truly fine art to me. And I've never forgotten it. So once this came about, when I was thinking about styling and how we were trying to situate our models in the future, to me, those styles were futuristic, even though they were uh, traditional. And so that's what I used as a, as a way of signifying these, these queens this way. Grace, you had quite the international upbringing. You were born in Nairobi, Kenya, 
and spent time in Ethiopia, Botswana, and Canada, later settling here. How did your experiences growing up in these countries inform your work? The experiences of being, and uh, there is a term for it called third culture kid, is that when you, when I'll say me and my sisters traveled from place to place, we always took something from the place that we came from and tried to find what was familiar in the new place. Sometimes we didn't, and we incorporated what was from the new place, we incorporated that into our experience and, and our identity and how we expressed ourselves. And where we found commonalities was from other people who were also othered from the places that they were born and were having the same experiences as we were in the United States. In Ethiopia, we went to an American international school. So we had a taste of American culture before we even came to the U.S. Even in nursery school in Nairobi, my nursery school picture has children from all over the world. So it was always a cosmopolitan international experience, and we always carry that with us. So it's expressed definitely in the work that I do. Do you feel less othered here? I don't. The places where I feel less othered is among othered people. <laughs> so a lot of people who are uh, immigrants, military kids, people who worked in the Foreign Service, people who are stationed in other countries and grew up all over the place. So we find home among each other. Maurice, you, on the other hand, were born and raised in the United States. What was it like for the two of you collaborating on this exhibition with different perspectives on the African diaspora? Well, the project starts with us in dialogue together about our differences. So for me, being disconnected and trying to understand more about Africa, I ask a lot of questions because uh, she's from the continent. So I'm going to ask her, I'm like, hey, what's, what's it like there? Or what are the traditions? And, you know, what is this and that? You know, so we always have those kind of conversations. I also marked how it seemed that people didn't always want to be connected to African-Americans in particular, right? So a lot of people, let's say Africans, not all Africans, but some Africans would tell you, we are not black. And so once that statement was made, it really piqued my curiosity because as a African-American, when we tend to use the word black, we're thinking of everyone. We're thinking about the continental Africans. We're talking about the people in South America. We're talking about the islands. We're talking about everybody of African descent. But Africans were like, no, no, no. We are whatever they were. So they would say, no, we're Ghanaian or we're Kenyan or we're Somalian. They would never say we're black. That's kind of what sparked the project. So for me, I really fought that in the beginning because it's like, we're all the same. And like, well, no, we're not. And then, you know, after really thinking about it, I was like, you know, you're actually right. Because of our circumstances, we essentially have evolved into a new group of people. And so that's why I said, well, let's give us our own name. And that's where I came up with New Africans. Because again, we can't claim a country, right? Because a lot of us, we don't know, but we know we're from the West Coast more than likely. They can say, hey, we're specifically from this country and from this tribe or from this area. So for us, we can say we're the New Africans. 
I see. You know, I often think when I hear the term African-American used, which is considered respectful, we don't talk about others as European-Americans. Right, exactly. So, I mean, what you're saying is essentially is because of slavery, people were deprived of their cultures. Maurice, when I first heard you say that some Africans you have met don't say we're black, it brought home the fact that it's not about pigment. We're talking about cultures. Yeah, you're so right. That's funny that you say that because I've been struggling lately, even with the term black. Because uh, if we look at that term black, it comes from a negative connotation, right? Well, but when I was a teenager, mm -hmm. which was in the late 60s, black was beautiful. Yes. Something to be proud of. And whereas my parents' generation respectfully referred to Negroes, no, in the 60s, it was okay to be black. And blacks themselves or African-Americans embraced that. It's just so interesting how we get caught up in these labels. Yes, it is. You, you know more than me, but you have to look at the evolution of what black people were called. So at first they're called the N-word, right? And then they're called Negroes or colored, actually. They're given the name colored. And then we get to a place where we're now called black, right? That was like the lesser of the evils. And they took that and tried to make it positive. So that's where you have the black and I'm proud and I'm black and I'm beautiful, that whole movement, right? But then you also have people saying, no, we're African. So people are wearing Afros and dashikis and they're trying to reconnect to Africa. That's what was happening in the late 60s and the 70s. You're absolutely right. Now, back to the exhibition. The opening party is on May 15th. How will virtual museum goers, the exhibit goers, be able to communicate with the artists at the gallery opening? Leatrice? Well, we will be having an artist talk at the gallery opening. So people will be able to ask questions of the artists, um, you know, in chat on the platform. And then we can, you know, so we'll be able to engage with audiences back and forth. What we are trying to work through right now, which we'll have hopefully worked through by the end of the week, as we're kind of, we've been deciding the pros and cons of various platforms to, because we want to give audiences the most personal, you know, access. So uh, we've been trying to figure out what feels the best. We recently did an event where we had about 200 people in the room, but it felt very intimate. So we're just trying to figure out how do we want people to feel when they come in, you know, so they'll see the work. Because we're trying to make the experience as close to an actual museum experience as possible, you know, in this kind of virtual space. And so there's still some kinks that we um, are working through over the course of this week. But like I said, by Friday, we should have all of that nailed down and then to go ahead and, you know, be able to make sure that the work is 
shown in the best possible light and that audiences are able to connect with it in the best way that we can do in a virtual space. So, you know, we're really trying to think deeply about it and putting some real thought to what that experience is for everybody. Moving forward, how will Hammond's House Museum incorporate digital programming after the pandemic? Well, digital programming is going to become like, you know, a, an anchor part of our programming. Because following this exhibition opening, we have a book signing with Jessica Care Moore later in the month. We actually are doing a concert on June 7th around African-American composers. So we've got 10 amazing voices that will be singing and we'll be doing this talk with Dwight Andrews about African-American composers and the, how the you know American canon, those voices are missing in the American canon. So we'll be doing that. We're doing our poetry event there. So right now what we're doing is like really kind of building out our templates to understand, to look at the breadth of Hammond's House Museum programming and how does that translate online. If this will become a staple of our programming because, remember, part of the original concept when we were thinking about it is how do we expand ourselves beyond our walls and to utilize technology to do that. And so that was our thinking the latter part of last year, moving into um, this year. And so now we, you know, we're, we're moving in that direction. So we will still absolutely do programming in the building and, you know, for the community because that is our, you know, that's who we are. But we also will be translating programming into the digital space as well and have a very healthy digital programming schedule as well. So you are way ahead of the curve with your thinking digitally, virtually. I'm sorry it had to be a pandemic that catapulted you into it sooner than you expected. Yeah. And, you know, um, let me also um, mention that I've been talking to colleagues across the country And people are really trying to, like some people already have an archive. You know, I've been talking to folks at the Apollo and the Apollo, they have an archive. And so it's been pretty easy for them to kind of roll out components of their archive and, you know, blend some live experiences with their archival uh, materials. But then you have other organizations that just don't have a healthy archive and they may have a dance company it's a little more difficult for them to kind of figure out how do we translate what we do online and they have to in order for them to kind of continue moving forward because there aren't going to be any dance performances for quite some time. People are not really going to be ready to gather for quite some time. So these organizations have to figure out what their digital space looks like. Hammond's House Museum Executive Director Leatrice Elsie with artists Maurice Evans and Grace Kisa. Their exhibition, New Africans, will have its virtual opening on May 15th. There will be a link to more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Chantel Ritter believes that we have a common calling to delight one another. And as light is part of delight, to that end, in 2010, she created the Atlanta Beltline Lantern Parade. That's the mothership of what has grown to include several lantern parades, 
Chantal Ritter is with us now via Zoom to talk about the Decatur Lantern Parade Festival. Chantal, thank you for joining us. Oh, it is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. First, can you tell us about how the crew of grateful gluttons began? (laughs) Yes. I lived in Atlanta for a little while in the 90s, and then I moved to New Orleans because it's my soul city, and I love it there. But um, I made so many wonderful friends in Atlanta. The people in Atlanta are um, really just the best. And so I ended up with the highest concentration of best friends in Atlanta. So I wanted them to come to New Orleans and just get their head around this what happens at Mardi Gras, the, the celebration of individual creativity on Mardi Gras Day specifically, it just seemed like that was just so us. So I, um, you know, anybody can make up a crew. <laughs> so I made up the crew of the Grateful Gluttons and really trying to lure my Atlanta people to come to New Orleans. When I ended up moving back to Atlanta, it was just unnatural for us to start parading here. But um, Atlanta was kind of missing some of the parade vibe that I so loved. But um, we fixed some of that. Yeah, you sure did. Now, we should designate for listeners crew here in the New Orleans context. It's spelled K-R-E-W-E, and that refers to those magnificent floats we see in Mardi Gras parades. Now, I love New Orleans because it's the most musical city in the country, I think. Yes. It's also a fabulous food city. Is that where the Grateful Glutton's name originated? We definitely came together around food. We're we're a bunch of foodies. And um, the creed of the Grateful Glutton's is to try everything, have seconds, and say thank you. Oh, I love it. We certainly mean about the banquet of life as well. That is a wonderful attitude. This is the ninth year of the Decatur Lantern Parade Festival. How did you come up with the idea now to have a parade in place? I mean, marching in place comes to mind, but that's not just what you had in mind. Right. Well, you know, I got to say, I just sort of spun around in circles for a few weeks once the uh, virus hit the fan with what to do with our beloved traditions. And I've landed on the idea of parading in place where everyone's always invited to participate in all the lantern parades. And to me, the best part is seeing all the lanterns that people make. Now that we've been making them for a decade, you know, there's got to be a bunch of lanterns in people's attics and stuff, right? So the idea of um, parading in place to like bring out your lanterns and lighten our hearts and to hang them from, you know, porches, balconies, yards, windows, and um, to make, you know, new lanterns, like why we, we make them to delight one another, you know, we can still do that. And then to like crank up some of the music from our parade bands, you know, they have, uh, they all have music available online or CDs. It would be fun to hear, you know, the band's music coming from yards and, and windows, and then to spread it out over the weekend so that, you know, so that we don't gather a crowd, but then also that we have the time to walk or bike or drive around and see, see some lantern love going on. <laughs> <laughs> I understand you 
are going to make available lantern kits. Is that true? Yes. We've been selling lantern kits from Kelly's Market in Decatur, and um, it's keeping me really busy. I'm so pleasantly surprised that so many people want them. You know, I really, I wish I had a crystal ball three weeks ago, so I had ordered more lights, but. <laughs> uh, well, what comes inside the kit? Well, they're um, globe lantern kits. So it's a, it's a globe lantern and a light and the batteries and a selection of the tissue paper to make it with and a sheet of instructions that I wrote up and a stick to put it on to parade. And then um, we're sold out of illuminated parasols, but it's very much the same. It's a white parasol. This year I designed uh, angel lanterns. So they are prints of my drawings and it's a paper cut and the kit is a like a hobby knife to cut the paper and the way it forms there's a it's like a vessel so there's a space there's a little door in the angel's chest that you can see in and inside is space for a collage or photographs i've been calling them keep safes like i miss my mom so i made one with pictures of mom and i in it and it's illuminated by a flashlight so um I'm really tickled with those. Oh, it sounds so special. And, uh, you know, the idea of honoring someone you love with an angel. We all need more angels watching over us now, I think. Yes, that's how I was feeling. I know in the past you have had lantern workshops. Will there be any equivalent this year? My partner and I, Steve Eberhardt, uh, just filmed it yesterday. So they're illuminated dioramas. So you might remember making dioramas as a, a kid in school. I love that. Well, I really love building things with paper anyway. So the idea is uh, you know, making a diorama inside of a box and then shining a light in it. One of the things about parading in place that'll be different and kind of cool is that we can see small things, you know, like if your box diorama, if you set it on you know, the edge of your yard or hang it off your fence, or of course, a lot of it will be seen by sharing photographs, you can see tiny, tiny things. And in a parade scape, it is hard to see tiny things. It seems like it goes by so fast. And, you know, I generally are building large scale puppets. So it's a kind of a fun opportunity to make things on a smaller scale that it's going to be seen differently, but hopefully it'll feel the same. Are you still going to have a lantern contest? Yes, so we are having a best parading in place award. So people can enter that by just posting on social with the hashtag parade in place Decatur. So Sunday morning, we'll pick the best one. And part of the prize is a visit from me and my 12-foot cat. Oh, <laughs> is this Rex Kitty? Yes, Rex Kitty is a, I made a giant puppet of my cat Rex, who I'm looking at right now. If he had any idea, he doesn't know how cool he is. Um, well, <laughs> as, as a puppet. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, so I'll go... I will come visit you in your yard with my cat, and it'll be funny. It should be wonderful. Now, who will judge the lantern decorations? I figured we would all look at them with my parade partners. So that's the fine folks at the Decatur Education Foundation and Decatur Arts Alliance and Color Real Studio, the three ladies that I planned this with. I figure we'll all look, take a look at them and make a decision on Sunday morning. 
the crew of the Grateful Gluttons giant lantern puppets will be wandering about town. You've already told us about Rex Kitty. Shall we be on the lookout for other supersized lantern puppets? Yes, yes. So we're um, going to bring out seven of them, Rex being one. Butters is a yellow dog who is uh, modeled after Joe and Rebecca's dog, Butters. Uh (laughs) So Butters and Rex are going to, we're going to go in different directions and it'll be a surprise. Like I'm not going to tell you where they're going to be because of course we don't want to gather a crowd and it'll be like waiting for Santa to show up, except they really will show up. Some people will see them for sure. Wait, you mean Santa doesn't really show up? I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe some people do see Santa in the flesh, but you will definitely be able to see the giant puppets some places oh, on Saturday night. So Rex Butters oh, are coming. The Inman Park Emus are coming. They're Inman Park Emus because their creator lives in Inman Park. And we have the Happies, Mr. and Mrs. Happy. They're the original giant puppets from the first year of Beltline Parade. It's so hard not to smile listening to you (laughs) describe all this. And it feels good to smile for this long. Can't say we've had a lot of that during the pandemic. Do you think there will be more at-home lantern parade festivals in other parts of the city or the state in the near future? I do. My next parade is uh, in Sandy Springs and it's would be it's its fifth year and we're looking at what parading in place there will look like. What's special about the Sandy Springs one is that I float giant lanterns on the Chattahoochee River over at Morgan Falls Dam. It's sort of all about the river creatures so we're thinking that the wildlife might wander up into the street this year and make some surprise appearances. Oh, wow. We have some giant great blue heron puppets that, you know, could be seen crossing Roswell Road. Very carefully, I hope. <laughs> Very because carefully. traffic can Very get carefully. crazy down there. Yes. Chantel, why was it especially important to carry on with the Lantern Parade this year? I think it's important to keep a hold on the stuff that we love and not just, not just cancel it, you know. We're going to get through this. And the Lantern Parades, to me, it's collective joy, you know, this thing that we do together. Like the seeing the people we share a city with as playful volumes of light and then to be witnessed as such. You know, it does a body good. It's restorative. I guess it's collective joy and we need it. So um, I think we need it now more than ever. And it's going to look different, but um, I really hope it feels the same. We do this thing together and we're going to keep doing it together and it's good stuff and we're not going to lose it. Chantelle Ritter is the founder of Decatur's Parade in Place and captain of the crew of Grateful Gluttons. The parade will begin on Friday, May 8th at sundown and continue until Sunday evening, May 10th. There's more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, a fascinating history of a favorite Southern food. 
You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. If warmer weather finds you cooking outdoors more now, maybe you've had a taste for barbecue. Southerners are serious when it comes to barbecue. Two years ago, the Atlanta History Center presented a wide-ranging museum exhibition on the subject, Barbecue Nation. The award-winning journalist, author, and food writer Jim Ockmody was a guest curator for the exhibition, and that work inspired his book, Smoke Lore. When we spoke last summer, Jim began with the history of barbecue. It's a universal and timeless food. It, it appears all around the world. People have been cooking over smoke and flames since prehistoric times. But it took on a particular identity here that uh, is, is so wrapped up in who we are. Uh, barbecue in America goes back to the earliest encounters between Columbus and the, and the European explorers and the indigenous peoples of the Caribbean. It's actually where the word comes from. It, it, during Columbus's second voyage in 1493 at what we think was Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, uh, the Spanish sailors observed the Taino Indians cooking fish and iguanas on a little framework of sticks. And their translation, their approximation of what the Tainos were calling it was barbacoa. So, which later got anglicized into the word barbecue. Please tell us how this beautifully illustrated book corresponds to the Atlanta History Center's exhibition, Barbecue Nation. Well, uh, 11 years ago, when I was still a reporter at the Journal-Constitution, uh, I was asked by the History Center to come in and serve as an advisor for this exhibition that they had in mind about the history and culture of barbecue. And I had written a lot about barbecue before. In fact, I had uh, co-written a barbecue sauce cookbook back in the 90s with Susan Puckett, the longtime food editor of the AJC, who's one of my best friends. And uh, so I knew a lot about it. And... Uh, and then it just kind of grew from there. I left the paper a year later, uh, took a buyout because I had some books I wanted to do and, and, and some other things. And uh, the exhibition got postponed because the recession hit and all of the funding sources that you need to put on a big exhibition like that just kind of dried up. But in the meantime, they asked me to do a companion book to it. And so I agreed to do that and started working on it. And then after the exhibition got put on hold, I went and did this other book, The Class of 65, did a whole other book in between the beginning and the ending of this book. Which is now a classic. Oh, well, thank you very much. It was a real labor of love. It, and it's very different from this book. It's a, oh, yes. it, it's a, it's a, it's a civil rights story uh, in Georgia. But I'd always done a lot of food writing. So when I finished doing The Class of 65 and finished doing the publicity for that, I came back. The economy was better. The exhibition was resurrected. I came back to doing this book. 
And then my involvement in the exhibition deepened because the lo- Craig Pascoe, a history professor at Georgia State College and University who had been the longtime curator for the exhibition, he had to back out for personal reasons. And they asked me if I would come in as a guest curator on the show. So in 2017 and 2018, I was working on that in addition to doing the book. So I was just up to my ears in in barbecue. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there are worse things to be surrounded by. Jim, where did your research begin? Well... I knew a lot about barbecue already uh, because I had written about it a good deal over the years at the Journal Constitution, and I'd certainly written about it a lot when Susan and our and, and our uh, barbecue sauce cookbook came out. But what I didn't know was how national a story it is. I I'm a Georgia native, uh, an Atlanta native, and I, I I certainly had the Southern boys' prejudice that barbecue is is almost a exclusively a southern and texas thing that we know it and everybody else is just interloping Um, (laughs) and and that's that's not true it's a much more national story uh i'll I'll give you an example i I didn't know this when i started uh research on this book but the whole you know when we think of barbecue now we think about a barbecue restaurant or what you cook in your backyard you think about that much more than you do like a big event a political barbecue or a community barbecue, which was the predominant sense of the word in the 1800s. There weren't any barbecue restaurants for most of the 1800s. But the whole backyard cooking thing did not start in the South, and it didn't start in Texas. It started in California. Well, they have, you know, they can be in their yards practically every day of the year. There's a magazine out there, Sunset Magazine, which is kind of like Southern Living. It was started by the Union Pacific in the late 1800s to promote tourism and settlement to the West. And they started promoting this idea of building brick masonry pits in your backyard and cooking on them, more inspired by Mexican rancheros than anything from Texas or the South. And they were actually the people who published the first barbecue cookbook in 1938. I didn't know any of that. Part of what's so wonderful about this book is it's not only a book about food, but it has history, sociology, anthropology, personal memoir. It's just a wonderful blend. Well, we, I tried to do it like a – I mean, it, it's a strange book. It, it's 50,000 words of text and 208 illustrations and 26 recipes. So it's not a cookbook. It's not a picture book. It's not an academic text history, although it's, you know, sourced responsibly like an academic history. It, it certainly strives to be that. But it's, it's, it's a popular history, and it's meant to be fun. Uh, and – an awful lot of it, I mean, we've got one whole chapter in there that's about all the cultural references to barbecue in, in America, particularly music. I mean, there's a lot of literature and movies and TV and Jacob Lawrence and great paintings and things like that in there. But music is the art form that has most identified with barbecue. And you think about barbecue music mostly as the blues, a little bit of country, a little bit of jazz. But it would interest you as a great lover of classical music to know that the first documented instance of barbecue appearing in American culture was a classical composition from the 1800s. And that was? The Barbecue Divertimento by Anthony Philip Heinrich, who was a German composer in the early 1800s who moved to America, was one of the first real professional composers here, and he was fascinated by all things American, and in in the 1820s, 
he got on a ship, got on a boat and went down the Ohio River and settled for a while in Kentucky. And he was so inspired by all of the rustic, sylvan stuff that he wrote a piece. I'll give you the full name of it. In 1826, he composed a sylvan scene of Kentucky, or the barbecue divertimento, comprising the plowman's grand march and the Negro's banjo quickstep. So he is incorporating all sorts of cultures into his uh, German, let's just say, Western European-based style of music. I love this. And this is the kind of thing that comes through in the book, um, you mentioned the great American artist, the 20th century artist, Jacob Lawrence. Right. Among the outstanding aspects of the book is you're writing about the relationship between barbecue and race in America. What role did the great migration play in the history of barbecue? Well, the great migration of African Americans from the South into other parts of the country in the early and mid-20th century undoubtedly uh, was a huge influence uh, uh, to, to spreading barbecue. And you can draw a direct line to some of the really great barbecue traditions in America, like Southside Chicago Rib Shacks, who, which pretty much are uh, came from people who moved up, black folks who moved up from Mississippi and Arkansas and western Tennessee. There was also a migration of many, many millions of white people from the South, and they took their barbecue with them, too. Uh, so I would say it's both of them, but it's easier to trace uh, the, the, the black migration. I have a whole chapter in the book about race and barbecue called The Color of Q mm-hmm. because I think it's such an important question. A lot of people, when they heard I was working on this book, would ask me, didn't black people invent barbecue? And, boy, is that a loaded and interesting question. And my answer is no, not exactly, but it sure seems that way because they're so profoundly identified with it in ways that are both admirable uh, and admiring and in ways that are stereotypical and ugly. Barbecue really, as we know American barbecue, it really has roots in about five continents. And it has almost every ethnic group that makes up this country is, is represented in barbecue. So you can't say that one group did it. But African Americans are obviously extremely, extremely important to its evolution because it first took root in the southern Atlantic colonies. It first took root on, in North America, in Virginia and North Carolina. And it was during the colonial days and the antebellum days. And most barbecues back then were big events, often on plantations. And you can be very certain that George Washington didn't cook that barbecue. It was his slaves. <laughs> yes. Would you talk about the different ways in which Southerners make stew, what many refer to as Brunswick stew, and you even refer to stew masters? Well, there there are several sort of one-pot uh, dishes that are related to barbecue that are associated with the South. Brunswick stew is the one we know in Georgia very well, but it's also in Virginia and North Carolina and parts of Alabama and a little bit of Tennessee. But I think it's probably the most distinctive thing about the barbecue tradition in Georgia is that you always find Brunswick stew, at least in the north, in the, in the Atlanta area, in the Piedmont, Georgia area. Brunswick stew is just an essential part of a barbecue plate here. Um, 
So Brunswick stew is one thing, and, and there's a great deal of variety in how Brunswick stew is made. In Virginia, where it probably originated, sorry, Brunswick, Georgia, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it has chicken in it pretty much exclusively. Down here, it's going to be a lot of pork, and there's usually a lot of chicken in it and maybe some beef. And it's fairly similar to the way they make it in North Carolina. They have a Brunswick stew-like dish in Kentucky that they make called burgoo. B-U-R-G-O-O, and it is so deeply ingrained in the culture there that back in the 30s, one of the winners of the Kentucky Derby was a horse named Burgoo King. (laughs) Oh, I don't want to think about the implications for the fast food restaurant that came after that. Burgoo King, I'm quite certain, was put out to stud and was not not, (laughs) did not turn up in anybody's pot. I'm Uh, glad to hear that. And then, and then in South Carolina, they've got a version of it called barbecued hash, which they usually serve over uh, over rice. It's much thicker and. And so there are all these barbecue one-pot side dishes, and Brunswick stew is the most famous one, but it's not the only one. And it's so American to have meat as a side dish for your meat. Well, yeah, I know. It's pathetic. It's like <laughs> it's like macaroni and cheese being a vegetable. Lots of people don't mind that. Many do not complain that, especially in our part of the country, mac and cheese is a vegetable. Your parents were a huge influence on your love for food and the conviviality of dining and for barbecue in particular. But apparently the real um, pitmaster was your grandfather, Daddy Bob. Uh, Please tell us about Daddy Bob's reputation in Bartow County in northwest Georgia. Daddy Bob, Bob Achmoody, uh was uh, a pit master. He was a farmer uh, in New Harley outside of Cartersville, Bartow County, and he was a pit master like his father before him, James Robert Achmoody, who I'm named for. And they made Brunswick stew and ran pits at community barbecues around there. And uh, he got a, uh, a little bit of fame in 1954 because the Saturday Evening Post, which was like one of the most highly circulated magazines of the time, did a feature of July, on July the 4th that year about Southern barbecue called Dixie's Most Disputed Dish. And they just happened to set it at the U Harley Farmers Club Barbecue in Bartow County where my grandfather ran, ran the pits. And so the first picture you see on that spread is of Daddy Bob. And he, they referred to him as a barbecue chef, which I think his, uh, his friends probably laughed at because they think he, I'm sure nobody else called him a barbecue chef. Um, but he, he was in demand after that. Uh, there was a, a bunch of people asked him to come and do barbecues, and he actually went up to Chicago and did a barbecue for a group up there for 2,000 people. Wow got in the car and drove up there with his wash pots to make Brunswick stew and all this stuff with a few of his buds. Two cars up, went up there. And when he came back, the Cartersville newspaper interviewed him and ran a story under the tongue-in-cheek headline, Rebels Cook Southern Q in Very Midst of Yankee Land. <laughs> As a Chicagoan, I can tell you that we never thought of ourselves as Yankees. That people from Connecticut and New England were Yankees. Oh, I think people from some people in cars were regarded Atlantans as Yankees. Atlanta author and journalist Jim Ockmurty speaking about his book Smoke Lore, a short history of barbecue in America.
You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. with recommendations for books as Mother's Day gifts. And we'll learn about maternal melodramas in American film. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also like us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Stay safe, wishing you well, and thanks for listening to 90.1 W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.